Hi there, I'm Andy Bush. Welcome along to another episode of Scarred for Life, a journey into the dark dystopian pop culture of the 1970s, 80s and beyond. I'm aided and abetted as ever by Steve Brotherston and David Lawrence, co-authors of the terrifying Scarred for Life books. You know how this works. Every week we'll be speaking to a special guest who'll be bringing with them three harrowing childhood memories of something that has literally scarred them for life since they were kids. Before we get uh, our guests to regress, uh, let's hear Something that has scarred you guys, our dear listeners, for life. Oh, we've had a message from Alistair Davison. He says, guys, if I had to pick three scars, it would be Children of the Stones. I tried to rewatch it and got no further than the old lady in the middle of the road. Salem's Lot, which I may have rewatched, but never at night. And my third is Crossroads. Yep, the 1970s soap opera. I can't remember the details, but there was a p- plot line where odd things were happening in a flat shared by two women. It turns out that one of them is sleepwalking, and the other way wakes to find the other wakes to find her shredding her a boyfriend's suit with a pair of scissors. Cue the Tony Hatch music and the end credits. Utterly terrifying, and it terrified the young me. Keep up the good work, says Alistair. Wow, I, I love I love that the first he got in Children of Stones was the woman in the road. That's literally the first scene. <laughs> so it's like early, two minutes in. <laughs> is, that, is that our first um, uh, scar from? Crossroads, which you believe, I believe that's the it, first one I, we've had. I, Absolutely is. Can I, can I just say as well, I, one of the things I love about Crossroads is I had a, I found a book, a Crossroads novelization. Oh, wow, like fan fiction. And the rev- and not even that, it was like a properly authorised book. Uh, and the review on the back, I loved the review on the back. It said, this book is as good as the TV show. <laughs> that's non-committal. Oh, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure there was, a, that's what you're going to someone out there on Twitter, wherever is going to, Either correct me or confirm. I'm sure Crossroads had a, sub- a, a storyline about a, an exorcism or wow. a seance. I'm sure there was a ghost in the motel. I may be wrong. This might be like early 70s, mid 70s, but I'm sure they did an exorcism or something in the motel. Because, I mean, this is the thing. Mo- Crossroads was mad. I don't know what the context for that scar is. I need to know. It's mad. The, the, I mean, it's, epi- yeah, it's got it's got the shining type vibes. Maybe it's built on like an yeah. American burial ground or something like that. Uh, do confirm for us. You know how to get in touch at Scarred for Life book on Insta at Scarred for Life two on Twitter. Uh, well, let's meet this week's guest. This week's guest is an actor and writer who starred in BBC's Horrible Histories for an incredibly successful five series. So successful, in fact, that in 2011 the Royal Albert Hall hosted the Horrible Histories prom. Uh, in which capacity our guest gave a singing voice to George IV, Richard III, and more. Uh, the cast of Horrible Histories gelled so well that they formed the creative collective Them There, and together they created Yonderland for Sky TV and the internationally successful Ghosts. Our guests can also be seen in Here We Go, Sex Education, Peep Show, and many, many more. We are delighted to welcome to Scarred for Life the brilliant Jim Howick. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, it's brilliant to have you on the podcast. Uh, can, can you go back to childhood, the, you know, the early days? Can you remember what first got you into pop culture, alternative stuff, the things that are uh, you know, entombed in the pages of the Scarred for Life books? What kind of started it off for you? Um, I think having an older sibling started off for me. Uh, I was My sister's six years older than me, which is a huge gap when you're, you know, at sort of nine those kind of formative yeah. years and she's already sort of 15 16 um which is a massive difference so i was exposed to things way way too early in my life um and i th- i'd like to say it didn't do me any harm 
but uh, raking back through my memories, <laughs> perhaps it did, because this has been really difficult to narrow down to three sort of, sort of seminal, scarred moments in my life. Um, I've, I've, I've had to like list a few honorary mentions um, uh, because, it, yeah, I, I imagine everyone says this, but there's so many things that are kind of lurking in your memory and, 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 and hidden. <laughs> yeah that you uncover but yeah i mean things i sort of you know go back over it. absolutely i think uh, you know the, the things that are sort of i i sort of came upon are things that i sort of came across so and i think that's the same for most people so you know public information i mean you get a lot of these public information but i was you know yeah. i'm a child of this sort of late 70s and the 80s and 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 so that was the time um but also things like, you know, here's an honorary mention. So I remember um, coming back. My dad used to play football for the local team. And I can remember remember us coming back quite late um, from one of his football nights, like kind of an award ceremony. And I remember it because we'd won a fruit hamper in the tombola. Um, <laughs> and we got, in, we got in quite late. And, uh, and my sister just went over to the kitchen TV and turned the TV on. And what came onto the TV was uh, the nanny in the omen about to hang herself. Um, Whoa. Yeah. Which is quite a moment. Stays anyway. with you, that, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It's, it's, you know, it's quite a set piece. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I just remember. And she was quite candid as well, my sister. You know, my, I don't think my mum really knew what was going on. And I said, what is this? And uh, she went, oh, it's this film about the devil um <laughs> just really dismiss the devil child yeah it's fine <laughs> it's just, yeah it's a devil you know i mean you you, you we'll, we'll get on to your amazing work with horrible histories shortly but um, yeah. one thing that is a recurring theme in uh this podcast is uh, that back in the day there wasn't really a distinction between um kids tv and adult tv they kind of talked to children like adults in many ways so you didn't feel as protected or i, I guess now kids are a lot more insulated from watching kind of weird stuff um if it's on telly than back then would you agree with that statement or not jim oh definitely 100 percent. i mean you know making tv i we're always aware and certainly making shows for our families which is kind of where our group has found ourselves um yeah of course there are, you, you have to work within certain margins and I, th I think it's fair to say that that uh we were treated with a certain resilience. Um, you know, they they assumed that we'd be fine with sort of children shows like well, look at the Chucky state of us. We're not and Moondial and all these things. And um, uh, but I also think that there's something sort of healthy about a scare when you're a kid. I really enjoyed it, and I think that's something that's I've I've taken with me into adulthood. My yeah. love of horror comes from a sort of sense of communion with the people I'm watching it with. Um, and that hasn't really left me. It's the same as comedy, really. I think there's a very fine line between the two genres. And when you're scared of something on the telly, or on the cinema, or whatever, you 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 you, you it's just, it's it's something that that no other sort of genre you could, can give you. you. This this sort of thrill. This like it's like being on a ride, really. And I've always loved that. So I was going to say about the omen. The, the, the bit that got me was uh, Patrick Troughton getting a big spike through him from the, yeah, the church. I didn't get to that bit. Uh, uh, 
Oh, <laughs> or, or, or David David would want to get his head chopped off by the, the, the yeah. yeah, I was yeah completely traumatized by the omen. I did an inside number nine with David Warner. Um, it's called the Trial of Elizabeth Gadge. It was series two, and um, poor David. I mean, we were actually inside and a sort of an old barn. And I, I yeah. thought it would be filmed in a studio, the whole thing. I don't know if Reese has, uh, has told you about this, but we were filming in this um, in December in this freezing cold barn, and I was asking him so many questions about The Omen um, because it was the first sort of decapitation on Western cinema. Um, <laughs> what an accolade. And, and he got quite grumpy with me, I think. I don't know. I don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> well, I mean, you just mentioned comedy uh, a bit there and that kind of fine line between comedy and horror. Um, uh, Jim, the first time I ever set eyes upon you was uh, as Gerard in The Peep Show, uh, one of the greatest comedy series of all time. What, what was it like to work on uh, such a, an influential comedy programme like that that's so well and still revered to this day? I mean, it was my favourite show at the time, and and that's something that rarely happens. I think um, I don't know if that's ever happened to me since. I don't. Well, it hasn't. And um, to be cast in what is already your favourite show was um, a, a genuine thrill. And going on to that set, um, as it was then, it was the first two series. I think were filmed in the actual in an actual flat in Croydon, and um, and then we moved around to different studios, and it was a build, but. It was still essentially the same set and they had the same props and everything else and all the books and, you know, the bedroom. Yeah, it was an, it was a total thrill. And I didn't think I'd stay in the show, to be honest. I thought I was just this sort of character that just cropped up in this one particular episode. Um, and I've mentioned this in a few interviews because it's so strange. <laughs> it's ne- you know, this I don't think this will ever happen to me again. But my very first day on Peep Show was in a uh, strip club. Um <laughs> Uh, and I was I was being sort of lap danced upon all day, like we broke all for lunch. <laughs> we broke for lunch, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then we sort of went back. And it was uh, I was only really in the background for the scene. I don't know if you know. I don't know if you remember the scene, but like yes, the line yeah, yeah, is sort of a, there's a moment where I sort of draw focus, and 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 and, and the line is it's Mark's in a monologue, and he says, "Oh my God, she's touching the tube. That can't be hygienic." And it's this lap dance, little like, nose tube, thing. stroking my um, my stomach level, my stomach acid levels tube. That was a strange day. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we were just, we were talking about North London just before we hit record. Um, uh, that's where where you're from. And weirdly, with with the whole peep show thing, one of the things that wowed me the most when I first moved to London was standing outside where the TV rental shop was that was in the opening sequence, uh, which is in Crouch End of the original, uh, you know, the first series of Peep Show. Do you remember yeah. that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it was an Italian restaurant, yeah. I think. That's right. As well, so. I know it well. In the, on the square, yeah. I Because I, I, yeah. well, I went to Mountview um, Academy, um, which at the time, it's in Peckham now, but when I went, when I studied there, that the, ba- the, the, the uh, sort of, uh, what's the word? Um, bases, I guess. Yeah campuses were in was in Wood Green and Crouch End on on the hill um up on um it's now um an autistic school I think or yeah so but that was Mountview originally and so I spent a lot of time in Crouch End and uh quite an expensive place to be for your sort of 
poorest year of university <laughs> the third year yeah. what well, um, well no I, I was i was just looking at your you know your, your career you start like is it right to say you started out with in armstrong and miller in like the late 90s would that be the, your first break into tv or where, where did it kind of begin for you well it was it wasn't actually that series that was the armstrong and miller because Ch- channel four did a few series of armstrong and miller and then they took a break and then um, I was doing sort of fringe uh, shows at the Hen and Chickens Theatre in um, in on Highbury Corner in North London, and um, with a group called the Dutch Elm Conservatoire, who um, were uh, so in the group was Jim Field Smith, who's now a director. He directed uh, Hijack most recently, and he directed me in in Stag, Rufus Jones uh, from Home. Um, and uh, Dan Renton Skinner, who plays Angelos. Um, and so, you know, we were a sketch group and Ben Miller came to see the show in the pub and approached me afterwards and, and said, look, we're doing, we're sort of, we're bringing back, we're regenerating Armstrong and Miller, a sketch show, but for the BBC. And would you like to come along and read some scripts with Jimmy Mulville, who was, you know, the exec producer at the time, hat trick, and, and that's how I got involved, and that was my sort of break into television, really, because uh, Caroline Norris was producing Armstrong and Miller, and she went on to produce Horrible Histories, and so um, she asked me to read for Horrible Histories, and and that's and that's that, and so it kind of rolled on from there. Yeah, on Horrible Histories, obviously, I, I think I said to you before we started recording that I'm, I'm a huge fan of Horrible Histories. And I mentioned to my wife today that we'd be speaking to my wife, Alex, and she sang a, a pitch-perfect rendition of I Can't Stand My Wife. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is the George IV <laughs> yes. song. Yes. Um, also, I, I, I've got a three-year-old son, and I mentioned to his uh, key worker, uh, Keris Jones, I said that we were talking to you, and she said, she used to spend every history lesson in school asking a history teacher to put on horrible histories, and it, it she, you particularly made her childhood. So I'm just wondering, what's been the impact of horrible histories for you? I mean, how has that felt for you? How's that been for you? I mean, to be honest, I'm just I'm I'm you know I, we were always aware that it was a big deal, you know, and uh, often sort of uh, adults and you know during the time sort of adults and certainly teachers would get in touch and say that you know you thanks thanks for this because it sort of proves that you know if you make learning fun then 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 children are really going to listen and pay attention and so many kids have 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 taken up history uh exams and and and, and studied history at university um, and have said to us that it's they were inspired by horrible histories but i think really we're all just sort of feeling it in the last sort of three years because the first generation audience of horrible histories and now sort of graduates um you know they're sort of 23 24 um and so when you go to when you go out you know it's just you get it a lot now uh, because they're out too and you feel really old were you into (laughs) history you do you have a love of history growing up and everything jim yeah yeah all of us did i think it's fair to say i mean i don't think any of us were sort of history scholars or anything but we were really into it. I was into it big time. I mean, I used to get this um, magazine uh, every two weeks, which was called Discovery. I don't know if you remember that, but it was a kind of yeah. each week there was a different historical figure. And um, so I think the first week was Elizabeth I and then Shakespeare and Columbus and blah, blah, blah. And I had them all in a big binder. And I 
loved it. Absolutely loved it. And I just felt like, you know, and also for my ninth birthday, I remember asking my mum and dad to take me to Hampton Court. And it's quite an unusual thing for a sort of nine. Most kids want to go to sort of McDonald's or something, but I wanted to go to Hampton Court and and just sort of see if I could find the ghost of Catherine Howard or something. Um, I was. Did you really... have a good history teacher though? Did you have a teacher that inspired you, like you guys have inspired kids who've watched horrible histories, or is that come out of um, maybe not having a great teacher back in the day? Uh, no, she wasn't great. I won't name her, but she wasn't really that great. I mean, I you know I. I was sort of quite lucky, really. Both my mother and my grandfather uh, were really into history. And I remember my grandfather, when I was about seven or eight, bringing me to London. And we basically did all of London in a day. And it's a treasured memory for me, actually. It's probably one of the best days I've ever had in my life. But we, but we, you know, we went to St Paul's and we looked at sort of, you know, the we went to the Tower of London and, and... He was very interested in history and particularly the sort of macabre uh, chapters of history. He wasn't a ghoul in any way, but there's something sort of otherworldly about that. I think to think that our world and the buildings we can see now were around when life was so uh, macabre and and cheap um, is is, is, is an otherworldly thing. It feels like another planet almost. My history teacher was called uh, Mr. Jones, and he was really good. And I just remember to get to have a scar for life moment. He was telling us about sitting in front of the the, the radio, I think it was, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Wow. And bearing in mind, we, at that point, we were facing like the sort of the, the early eighties nuclear paranoia. That properly shit us up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So that that. But what I was going to ask, what I was actually going to ask was, uh, a lot of the songs in horrible histories are parodies of well-known pop songs. Who decided which pop songs would be parodied? I'm just interested. Yeah, I mean, that sort of came about. In fact, I think that's when we sort of found out what the show actually was, because before... And I think that came about with The Four Georges. And um, I think it's fair to say that we owe that to the director of the studio work in Horrible Histories, a guy called Steve Connolly, who directed Spitting Image. He means he's done loads of stuff. He directed a lot of Yonderland. We got him involved in that as well. Um but he said, look, I don't know how we're going to do this, but I think it's best if we just keep it simple, put you on stalls and treat you like your Westlife. And the show wasn't written as a Westlife <laughs> parody at all, The Four Georges, but we just performed it as if we were Westlife. And it did, it, you know, it was very, very popular when the first series came out and much more popular, in fact, than the other sort of such songs in that series, which are kind of... Uh, a kind of a more, more childish, sort of really, it's fair to say, more sort of nursery rhymey. And from and then when we turned up for the rehearsals for series two, we were then told, OK, we've got an Adam and the Ant <laughs> parody. We've got, you know, what else was there? There was like a Bon Jovi one. And, and uh, you know, we that was already decided that this is what we were going to do. Um, so, you know, we 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 would because we, we were we were guns for hire on that show. We didn't really write. I mean, Larry wrote it a lot. Who plays Robin in Ghosts? He wrote probably about 65% of the show himself, but um, the rest of us were, were actors, purely actors in it. We obviously used to ad-lib and add little punchlines and, you know, things like that, but we weren't creatives on it, really. Um, and so it wasn't really until the end when we knew that it was kind of wrapping up and that they said, oh, you know, and perhaps they were kind of a bit sort of, I don't know, 
starved of inspiration themselves and that we'd run out of songs or genres but they said you know is there anything that you want to do and uh, Matt and I really wanted to do uh, Simon and Garfunkel as Vikings and and so that that came about <laughs> Um, I just wanted to see Matt with the wig, you know, and the and the and the hairline. I just thought <laughs> yeah. that was the funniest look. <laughs> uh, did you guys ever get, a, you know, come up against? You know, there's been a real um, reappraisal of historical characters and their, you know, and their uh, their legacy. Obviously, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, just being from Bristol and the statue of um, Edward Colston, Colston, etc., being pulled down. Um, did that come into it at all in terms of because obviously there's there's a fun light-hearted a huge part uh, element of uh, horrible histories is the is the fun and the general mockery of it all and, and making things a bit silly but did you have to navigate around the kind of you know uh, the delicate areas of history at all but that was that a thing um i think so i think that time is a great sort of um what's the word sort of it, it provides a sort of numbness um Obviously, it's tricky to do things that are within living memory of of, of the audience, and and certainly yep. sort of the older members of the audience. So, you know, you have to be careful what we what we, you know, World War One was a tricky one. Obviously, American history is a difficult one because it's also recent, you know. Yep. But then it's fine in another breath to do Nero burning Christians as candles in his front lawn, something kind of horrendous. I mean that is horrendous. I mean I do remember reading that and thinking, "Wow, that's that is violent." I don't. Is that okay? Can we do that? And not only did they have the sort of sound effects of of the flames, but they also put people screaming <laughs> in post. You could hear people going, "Oh God, help!" Out! And uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, I think it, you know, time provides a different world when you're dealing with things that are a thousand years old. It's kind of okay. Yeah. Was there anything with horrible histories that you presented to the BBC? Well, you just mentioned Nero, and they just went, no, no, you can't do that. I'm sure there must have been things. I mean, I, I, again, I probably, I wouldn't have been involved in those those meetings. I right. just would have, we would, would have got the scripts when we turned up for, for rehearsals. And and it was, um, it was a lot of stuff. I mean, it was a massive amount of work. We filmed 12 episodes in the space that you would normally film six in any sort of given sort of sitcom schedule so most sitcoms that aren't sort of um sort of high budget no sitcoms are but most sitcoms that aren't high budget will 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 spend a week and ep a week filming an episode and it was the same for us but we had to film two episodes so and that i think that you know i mean away from sort of what was i'm sure there would have been things that it would have been too uh, macabre, I'm sure of it, um, <laughs> gruesome. I don't know. I mean, it's a tricky thing because that is that is the hook of the show. That's what sort of got kids interested in it, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, the way we shot it, I think, really helped um, provide us with a tone because we really didn't have much time to make to film the sketches. We had spent most of our day in in makeup because we had sort of three or four different looks a day and the day wasn't planned around a, a period. So it wouldn't be like, oh, we're doing Greeks all week or we're doing Georgians all this week. It would be, oh, we're filming at um, Chiswick House for the next two days. So we're using the pillars 
uh, to do a Roman scene and we're using a corner to do a Greek scene in the orangery. Right. Then we're going inside and we're shooting a Stuart scene. And so you were in different looks all day. Um, and so, you know, it, it, you spent probably about 10 minutes actually filming a sketch, which for us was, it made the sort of show seem so punky and anarchic because we yeah. just didn't have time to finesse it in any way. So I think it gave yeah. the show a a sort of pulse um, that kids could really relate to. Yes, I, I think it's fun to think that Horrible Histories will be some kids' scarred for life moments oh, in the future. Oh, for sure. I'm, think, I'm thinking particularly of a song that Matt sang, which is uh, Pachacuti. Yeah. Which is about a guy who uses the bloated bodies of his corpses of his enemies as drums. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which is a horrible idea. It's horrible. Yeah, it's horrendous. I mean, I think I think that's probably one of the most bloodthirsty songs. There is another one that's similar um, about Aztec priests that Matt and Larry and I do as the Bee Gees, um, which I think is is creepy as hell because it's so, you you have this upbeat disco pulse, uh, this disco beat, and we are. We we look terrifying, and we're sort of doing the sort of big sort of VGs Barry Gibb teeth, um, and the and the voices as well, and and yet we're talking about um, killing thousands of people and sacrifice, uh, you do. <laughs> and throwing them down the stairs. You know, proper apocalypto <laughs> awfulness. <laughs> you know, bad. I mean, uh, I've got my Matt's kid when he was growing up. He's like. I think he's about 13 now, but when he was a kid, he was terrified of Simon as stupid deaths. So I think if, yeah. if Scarred for Life were to do a, a 2000s edition one day, then I'd like to think <laughs> stupid, stupid death would be on the cover of that. <laughs> Uh, uh, Jim, let's talk about ghosts. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, did you did you grow up reading ghost stories, being into supernatural uh, stuff? And if so, are you a believer in ghosts? What's your what's your viewpoint on this? Um, well, I'd like to say no, but we stay in a we stay in a hotel when we film ghosts, or we did stay in a hotel called the Angel Hotel in Guildford, which is sort of renowned to be haunted. Um, oh. Roger Moore apparently saw a ghost of a soldier in the mirror there and sort of there's a nun in there, you know, classic nun. Always a nun. Um, there's always a nun. Always a um, nun. And mm. all of us, I think, over the years, during the sort of course of, of promotion and interviews or just chat in the green room, we've all said that we don't really believe in ghosts, but none of us wanted the haunted room in the hotel so <laughs> make of that what you will <laughs> i think deep down everyone does a little bit right but um it's i i sort of grew up yeah i had a big imagination growing up as a kid and and uh and and yeah i i, I thought every creek in the house was was something was something out to get me yeah. It's nice to have a, uh, a friendly kind of ghost element though Do you know I mean because we kind of grew up with uh poltergeist or the ghost yeah. of Thomas Kemp. Like, oh, actually, to be fair, I think the ghost of Thomas Kemp that we were forced to read that at school. I think he, at the end of the day, he was all right. Yes. But uh, n normally, ghosts are kind of mean, uh, you know, bad. But they're going to do bad things to you. Whereas, obviously, the ghosts in in ghosts are a nice bunch, aren't they? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think you know, 
it's still pretty freaky. I think that if I was Mike and I couldn't see the ghosts and my wife could see the ghosts, I would that wouldn't help uh, if she told me, it's fine, they're really nice. That would actually freak me out a bit more, I think. Uh, why are they so nice? What do they want? They want my soul. Yeah, what they have to. Exactly, yeah. Um, I don't think, you know, they, apart from sort of rent a ghost, which I never really got into as a kid because it didn't scare me. You know, I think if I wanted to, to watch something about ghosts, then then I wanted it to scare me a little bit. Okay, well, let's, speaking of scare, let's get straight into this then. Uh, Jim, the, the way this podcast works is you bring with you three things that terrified you as a kid. Can we get your first scar, please? Yeah, so my first scar is um, probably, I would say, it's probably pretty widespread, shared with many listeners and, 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 and readers, and that is Vera getting turned into a cyborg in Superman 3. Oh, wow. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, brilliant. And so, for you know, to, to add context, uh, Vera, who is a sidekick of the antagonist in the show played by Robert Vaughan, uh, he's building a sort of supercomputer and the supercomputer becomes self-aware and as they're trying to sort of escape it, as it's kind of blowing up, it, it sort of, an energy beam sort of lassoes her and drags her into the computer and transforms her into a kind of Ronnie Wood cyborg. Yes. <laughs> 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 it looks like Ronnie Wood. Um, yeah, it's got the hair for it. It's got the hair. The for wig's it, amazing. The wig's yeah. incredible. I mean, it it did the job. It absolutely. It, and I was trying. I'm trying to sort of work out why why it was so um, freaky um, and terrifying. And I think that if it had been any other sort of antagonist, any sort of atypical antagonist in in the sort of eighties. Let's face it, sort of an evil man, then yeah. it wouldn't be in half as scary as it was. But because it was a middle aged woman, um who at the time when I watched it was sort of near and near about the same age as my nan. Right. <laughs> it's like seeing your nan getting dragged into a supercomputer and turned Imagine into that. a cyborg. There's a certain vulnerability you associate with your grandmother and um, not all middle-aged women, of course, but I think as a sort of young uh, child, I found that extra freaky that that she, of all of the group, had been sort of picked to to be turned into to be transformed, to be killed, and turned into a, a Ronnie Wood cyborg. Um, <laughs> more so than the sort of claustrophobia, the fact that she was awake when it happened as well. Um, yes. There's just it's yeah. just a really really lovely moment, um, which I think will stay with most most of our generation. It's Richard Lester as well, isn't it? And so you don't really associate yeah. those kind of moments to it, Richard Lester's wheelhouse, but he did an amazing job in that couple it's minutes. It's an, that was an amazing example because Superman Three is the funny one. It's the Richard Pryor. Comedy Absolutely. film. Yeah. I saw that. I was thirteen when that came out. I saw it twice at the cinema. Yeah. Always been a huge comic fan. Love Superman. I had no recollection of that scene. It didn't. 
I don't know why. I always remember everything else with Superman 3. I only became aware of that scene properly about three or four years ago on Twitter when someone suggested it, posted the gif of poor Vera getting turned into Ronnie Wood, the cyborg. (laughs) (laughs) And I saw it and went, Jesus, that's horrible. Yeah. Why didn't that bother me as a kid? Why can't I even remember it? I can't. I, it's one of those things. I think for me, was like Wurzel Gummidge and Nosy Bunk. I just found it whimsical as a kid. As an adult, I think it's horrifying. And I, it's a different I side to it. Regularly, and it always explodes. It's people who can't look at it. People who are kind of getting flashbacks to being <laughs> a, a kid in the cinema. It's. I think it's that thing of like. It's like you said, Jim. It's. It's a Superman film, it's Richard Lester, and suddenly it ambushes you with a moment of absolute horror. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's treated seriously, it's treated as horror. The jokes stop. So but I always every time I tweet it, I kinda think, why don't I remember this? Why didn't this bother me as a kid? And I don't know if it was because growing up in the seventies and eighties, I was so immersed and sort of surrounded by horrible stuff. Maybe it was just kind of, it was starting to wash over me as a 13-year-old. Yeah. It's horrible. I mean, I it's was, absolutely horrible. Yeah, I was about five the first time I saw it. And and yeah, as you say, like that was something... Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I was born in I was born in 79. And so I think that came out in 83. So I didn't see it at the cinema. I yeah. saw it probably on a, a pirate actually if i'm honest i don't know <laughs> um but but yeah like um yeah uh, it, it, as you say it has no place tonally in that film you would totally expect it to be sort of in the second film which is probably i think my favorite as a kid certainly as an adult yeah. i think the first one's now my favorite but when i was a kid the second one was my favorite one the third one i found sort of too funny like i wasn't into yeah. the sort of comedy I wanted more sort of serious Superman adventure, um, but that was on another level. I mean, that that had yeah. no place. I don't think that really had any place in any of the Superman <laughs> films, to be quite honest. You know, uh, Jim, I, forgive me if you you haven't picked um, a star a Star Wars thing for any of the other two, have you at all? No, I haven't. No, no. no. I, I read that you're you're a massive Star Wars fan. Are, are yeah. there any moments? I mean, when I was a kid, it was all kind of Star Wars or Superman and all that kind of stuff. Is there anything in Star Wars that can compete with Vera turning into like a cyborg Ronnie Wood? Is there, is there anything of that level? Was any bit of Star Wars frightening to you that, oh. that you can remember? I mean, I was. I mean, yeah. I, I, um, not massively i thought i mean i'll tell you what i always i mean this isn't this isn't really a a scary sort of moment but i remember when i used to watch star wars the moment where vader strangles um the chokes the guy in in new hope who sort of starts giving him lip about you know the force and then he's and then and then um uh cushing says enough of this vader release him and he kind of and there's a light like under him as he recovers yes. from the choke. I used to think that was an egg when I was a kid. I used to think <laughs> that Vader had put an egg. <laughs> Watch it again. It looks like a yolk. It's <laughs> the weirdest I, thing I've ever heard. I used to think, well, but, so what freaked me out was something that uh, wasn't actually, it didn't exist, but it looks like a raw egg. And I thought, wow, Vader's planting eggs in. That's what the force does. It put an egg in your throat. <laughs> Practical joke. Um, you mean like practical joker or <laughs> magically putting an egg into his? Magically, into his... yeah, yeah. Don't put an egg there. Um, 
Yeah, that's, I mean, I suppose there was that bit, but no, Star Wars didn't really freak me out. I think Star Wars was so sort of, uh, for me, gung-ho and a sort of a pace um, that you you, you just you just went along with it. And, and I think that, I mean, I suppose the closest thing would be um, like the arm getting cut off in the cantina or something like that. But, yeah. but that, that didn't really freak me out much when I was a kid. I, that was, uh, yeah. I think the glimpses of Vader in the Empire Strikes Back, where you see the kind of scarring on his head, I think that was pretty probably, bad, isn't it? for me, the most disturbing thing. Just what's beneath that helmet? Obviously, you find out in the end it's not as bad as you thought it was. But uh, <laughs> in, in Empire Strikes Back, I thought that was that was probably the, what disturbed me the most. Yeah, as a child, I think it was the it was the arm, and in Empire Strikes Back, it was the torn, torn guts. Oh yeah, that really revolted yeah, me, yeah. and the idea that. Um, I think it was Han Solo was going to have to spend the night sort of squished up in in those guts for warmth. Kind yeah. of quite, knocked me sick. Quite, a bit they're quite nice. They, they, look, they always look fairly nice oh. and toasty to me. That, but I, I know, oh, are yeah. we overlooking the um, the uh, Jawa genocide? Wasn't there a Jawa genocide in the in first Star Wars? Where they yeah, killed, there was. C three PO just burning them on a on a bonfire in the background whilst they're yeah. chatting away. Just, just just, oh, just yeah. chucking them on the fire. Yeah, casually yeah. just burning them. Yeah, big pyre of oh, unk. Uncle Owen and Auntie yeah. Baru. Yes. Aunt Baru. The yeah, Garden. that's yeah. true. But then that again, that didn't because it's such an important. It's just, you know that's this sort of that's your that's your sort of catalyst. That's the moment where the story sort of turns. It changes and you begin almost begin Act Two, really, I suppose. But you were so driven by that point. You were so you saw the skeletons, and I wasn't freaked out. I was like, right, go and get them. Go and go and. Yeah. <laughs> revenge revenge and and you know uh, you know it, it didn't it wasn't a sort of old-fashioned revenge story but that's how i was feeling at the time I, but i think actually t- talking about empire like um there was a moment in empire which used to freak me out and that was the bit where uh vade where luke met sort of vader in a sort of dream fantasy and they had that battle and yeah. cut, cut vader's head off but then the mast exploded and you saw it was luke inside and also when Luke lost his own hand, when Vader chopped his yeah. hand off, that freaked me out a bit. But I think Star Wars was always kind of a safe place. I, I knew where I was in the universe and it, and, and, he, and I sort of knew the, sort of the, the boundaries. Superman 3, uh, I think it was exactly as you were saying there, Steve. I think it was the unexpected sort of tonal change of, of, the, of the death of Vera or the rebirth of Ronnie. <laughs> Depends how you look at it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Jim, could we get your second scar, please? Yeah, my second scar is a um, a uh, PIF, a public information film, and oh, it's the um, uh, the natural born smoker adverts. Oh, um, from oh, yes. nineteen eighty five. Um, so. Again, I think it's 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 it was kind of a trap almost because they were so sort of stunning to look at, and I didn't really appreciate this at the time, but the the craft, the level of craft in these adverts are in, incredible. Uh, so it's a yeah. dystopian sort of Blade Runner esque sort of um, future world, um, and you know you can see what a human would look like if it had evolved to adapt. into a a perfect smoker what your body would have to be um but the sort of ghoulish characteristics of this sort of man i mean to describe it would be a sort of um 
a pale sort of hairless Voldemort slash slash nosy bonk. Um, sort of sitting. What a combo! <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's crazy, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's but really, it was a very clever ad. The sort of, there was a satirical nature to it. Um, uh, for example, like one of the uh, sort of body characteristics were small ears because they don't listen. The first natural-born smoker will have a larger nose to filter out impurities. Self-cleaning lungs. A highly developed index and middle finger. Smaller ears because they don't listen. Extra eyelids to protect the eye from irritating smoke. And of course, an inbuilt resistance to heart disease, lung cancer and thrombosis. Unfortunately, the first natural-born smoker hasn't yet been born. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And when I was a kid, that sort of satire, that sort of went way up straight over my head, and I was much more interested in this kind of creature and what, what I was seeing. And I, this comes back to Superman as well. I remember we had a copy of Superman 2 recorded, and... Um, in one of the advert breaks, I knew that this was coming up and it was the advert break. It was the bit where Lex Luthor sort of vanishes. He's got this kind of hologram box and he's playing um, he's playing chess with um, Otis in, in the cell. And uh, it's like it, it, he disappears in, in that and that's his kind of means to escape. But the, it cut to an advert and I remember le- having to leave the room because the wow. advert would come on. Yeah. Yeah, there was, there, was, there was two of them. There was a, a follow-up um, yeah. where the natural-born smoker had had a baby. Yeah. So the whole message was passing second-hand smoke onto your child and yeah. that hideous face was kind of leering over the crib, blowing yeah. smoke into the camera. But it's like you say, it's got that... Um, there was the tone of anti-smoking piffs at that time was accusatory and very much attacking smokers. And it was yeah. that kind of... Like you said it was beautifully made, beautifully filmed, beautifully shot, almost like a kind of Ridley Scott vibe. There really yeah. was, but it was that thing of like you said, it's it's its ears have closed up because it doesn't listen. But by the time you get to the nineties, you find that the tone of those piffs have changed to right. We're going to help you to quit because yes. it's an addiction. Yes. So it it's quite an interesting thing to see a lot of them attacking smokers, really going yep. for the neck. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's it's an interesting. It is an interesting sort of, I suppose, tactic. It 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 feels, as you say, sort of much healthier, for want of a better word, to um, go for the um, it sort of health implications of smoking rather than you're an idiot. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, I think I think, yeah. I think the second the second advert actually the one with the baby's sort of POV looking up at this sort of hideous creature with sort of milky eyes and I mean it's horrendous. It's horrendous. I've just had a look at it. I'm, I wasn't aware of this from the eighties, and I've just had a look at it now, and it's it looks like something from um, Hellraiser or yeah. you know, Clive Barker esque. Yeah, kind yeah. Of, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, did it did it work on you, Jim? Did you go nowhere near cigarettes having seen this thing in the eighties? No. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't quite work socially no 
Um, <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, I mean, it, uh, it, I, I sort of look at it and think now, there's no need for this, really, is there? Like, it's a bit much. It must have cost thousands, hundreds of yeah. thousands to make that. Yeah. And, it, I mean, it's very good, but it was just terrifying. And um, it, it, So it it's... gave you that visceral reaction, a proper kind of you had to leave the room? Yeah, reaction. I knew when it was coming up. I felt really Jeez. uneasy. And um, I don't know why I didn't just sort of have the remote control. I don't... I'm not sure why I didn't just forward it on, but I I think it's because, you know, the thing is, is that adverts in the 80s um, were genuinely really entertaining. You know, I remember yeah, sort yeah. of one of my excuses of staying up later than I should have done was to, can I just watch one more advert? <laughs> because there were some genuinely <laughs> sort of good adverts. Would you remember um, the Guinness yeah. one? The Guinness advert yeah, that went over Guinness three adverts, adverts and yeah. they smashed through into each other's advert, like a yeah. cowboy fight and stuff like that. Yeah. It was like a, a real work of art. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And all the kind of, all the lager adverts, which were like basically like fantasy cartoons and things like that. And, and Oh, yeah. The lager you know, of what? That yeah. was a running gag back in the 80s, wasn't it? Comedians would say, like, the adverts are better than the programmes. Yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah. now it's even sort of sitting through one YouTube advert. I'm kind of like, oh, fucking Yeah, it's true. Yeah, right. it's just, there's not no time for it yeah. anymore. But, um, but they, they, it was, well, I mean, there was a lot of adverts aimed at kids. It seemed that way. But this one again, you know, just in the middle of nowhere, just stuck in this Superman two. You know, one of my favourite films growing up uh, was this sort of nugget of absolute terror, unbridled horror. I mean, there was a lot of scares around there. Public information films, you know, uh, pop up quite a bit in this podcast yeah. series. With, with with you know, you can see why because they have such a big effect on people. What were you aware of? Like, well, what what were the big issues when you were growing up, Jim? Was it like the the, the old AIDS crisis and how terrifying that was. What was the thing that kind of scared you the most that you were worried about the outside world when you were, when you were a kid? Um, I was I was sort of too sort of um, I was too young really for the nuclear uh, threat films. Right. Um, working with sort of Simon and Ben, who are now fifty, um, they were acutely aware of it and actually provided them with an awful lot of sort of trauma. Um, things like Threads, you know, I only really watched Threads recently, um, which I which I loved. Wow. Um, you know, uh, I thought it was I thought it was incredible television, uh, but it was I was too young for it. I mean, my sort of exposure to that was probably like the beginning of like Two Tribes by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. You know, like you had the air raid warning at the beginning of that song, and I remember thinking, yeah. oh, "What is this about?" And again, my sister, you know, who had the single, she told me. And I still couldn't really get my head around it. Um, other things <laughs> like AIDS and things, AIDS awareness and that. Again, I was probably too young to sort of um, understand fully the nature of 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 that. Um, although you know, I, I, the advert, the John Hurt adverts are um, terrifying. Um, for yeah. me, it was fire. It was all about fire. So. You know, I was seven. I remember the King's Crossfire really sort of affected me when I was a kid. We used to visit London a lot. We had a lot of family in London. And I'm, I'm not actually from North London. I'm from the South Coast. So we used to visit quite a lot. And um, that really freaked me out. I remember exactly where I was. I was watching sort of um, like Willy Fogg. 
<laughs> like this cartoon called Willy Fogg. Um, and, uh, and, it, and it came on the news and it just, yeah, that, that really freaked me out. But fire, you know, was everywhere. You know, there was fires in Coronation Street. There was fires in sort of EastEnders and, yeah. and, and, uh, and loads of uh, public information about house fires and how you've got 30 seconds or your family are dead. Like I remember one advert that actually said that. That was the line in it. You've got 30 seconds or your family wow. dead. So I remember as a kid sort of constantly thinking about like escape routes. I remember sort of watching sort of the Tower Inferno when I was a kid and seeing sort of Robert, um, uh, what's his name? Is it Robert Wagner or sort of like, jumping out of the building you know a fall is better than burning to death with his hair aflame you know oh my fire fire, fire was the one <laughs> london's was burning probably didn't help then jim watching that london's burning that fly that on the wall the, documentary yeah i mean yeah it was it was yeah definitely fire chip pans you know chip pans oh, chip, chip pans, pans was a big one loads of oh, chip yeah. pans fire. How, how many chips were we eating <laughs> <laughs> Do you think air fryers have got the same? Are they all right? You don't need to put a wet flannel on or tea towel on them at one o'clock in the morning. I think, no, I think that's a different public information film. It is. That's the next one. Yes, yeah, so about about uh, fires. I actually set fire to my kitchen once. Uh, properly, fire brigade has to be called that and everything. And I got a wet cloth, threw it over the fire. I set fire to my wet cloth. <laughs> wow. That was, it that, work, that was a lie. I mean, uh, on that. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Go on, go on, Jim. No, I mean, you know, thank God for oven chips. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Much safer these Absolutely. days. Uh, right then, Jim, let's get your third and final scar, please. So my, my third and final scar is a film um, that I sort of watched probably too early. And um, it was, uh, it's called, it was, well, the, the, the uh, I suppose the English uh, title is Stage Fright. Uh, the Italian title is Deliria. And it was a... Um, a Jello film by uh, Michel Suave, who was a contemporary of Dario Argento, and I, uh, <clears throat> I remember sort of going camping with a family, friends of the family, and they were the 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 boys in the family were about four years older than me, so I really looked up to them, and you know, did everything they sort of said, and they were, you know, they were watching sort of Friday the Thirteenth and slasher films, and we were sort of talking about it in the tent one night and they mentioned this film stage fright where um a, a psycho you know it's, it's sort of typical slasher story really premise he, a, a psychopath breaks out of a, um, a mental institution and and um uh goes to a theater like a nearby theater where a, a company of uh contemporary ballet uh dancers are sort of creating this show and um locks them in and starts killing them one by one and, and, and they can't find the key to get out. So they're sort of stuck in this theatre. And I just, you know, the idea terrified me. But with all of these things, I think what brought me to these things and, you know, what brought me to brought me to films like Ro Robocop and Predator and all these films way too young was the graphic violence. Um, <laughs> now and, we get to know, the core of it. Yeah, I think so. Well, you, someone would say, oh, you know, I remember like as a kid, someone would say, oh, you know, and then this this robot called Ed 209 just pummels this guy, like shoots him, you know, about a thousand times and you just see everything. And everyone's like, what, you see it? Well, you actually see it. Yeah, oh, no, you see it. And then in stage fright, it's a sort of a similar thing. Like this killer sort of one by one sort of starts knocking people off, but in kind of really uh, 
in uh, inventive ways like a sort of drill through the stomach of a guy who's blocking a door and everything else oh. and so so wow. that that's sort of what what sort of made me think god that's a really good film to get out for like a sleepover or something so on my sort of 14th <laughs> birthday i persuaded again my sister to rent this film out um and we all me and sort of like five other friends who were staying over watched this film and what sort of separated it you know obviously it was it was you know there was graphic violence and um and everything else guts and gore but what sort of separated what made it ultra scary for me was the elements of uh, sort of that italian horror genre which were right. sort of nightmarish visuals um silence and sort of vivid uh, production and so I don't know if you guys have seen it. I'm not sure if you guys have seen it before. Never seen but it. You guys it years see? and years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went through the whole uh, Argento, Fulci, yellow yeah. phase. It is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it has a, you know, there's a something askew, um, which is which is missing from uh, from the sort of American teen slashes. Um, there's something that always terrified me, an element of, of all horror, whether it's Japanese or Italian, is perspective is distance so if something can see you from far away that immediately frightens me um oh, interesting so the idea of not of feeling safe but that someone can see you there's a moment in the original it um which a lot of people find quite sort of chonky but i think there's some amazing horror moments in that first uh tv film version of it it's not the end but certainly the beginning when the kids open the book and they see a street scene and you sort of see a street scene and, the, and there's a clown sort of very, very in the in the foreground, uh, sorry, in the background sort of dancing and doing cartwheels. And then he stops and he looks directly at the camera at a distance uh, and yeah. then he, po he points to where the kids are and then he runs up to the kids and he's in their face and, he, and he's come from a distance to be there. So he's seen them from a distance. That I think is a, um, a sort of for me a profound horror tool, and there's plenty of there's loads of that in this film. Do you know, it reminds um, me of um, you know in re in Hitchcock's Rear Window the moment yeah. where the, the guy they're watching suddenly sets eyes upon them, and up until that point he's not been able to see them, and and yeah, yeah something about that kind of the gaze from that distance that someone's gaze from that distance that um, is kind of chilling. Okay. terrifying you know carpenter did it very well in halloween i mean there's loads of it in halloween um you know out of the school window i think that's probably one of the scariest shots for me is is him watching her in school um obviously there's the there's the sort of him in broad daylight behind the bush but that's just a bit too close i need a little bit more sort of distant um uh yeah that's always sort of terrified me so this film sorry just to get back to the film you know that the killer is masked as most of the sort of jello genre films are, but he's masked in a kind of quite a naturalistic sort of owl mask. And it's not, it's not like the scream mask or, you know, the William Shatner mask. It's a, it's an owl mask and it's got feathers and everything else. So it's just very unusual, very unsettling. And at, and at the end of the film, I mean, am I allowed to give things away? I don't really, uh, am I? Yeah, but do it. Basically yeah, he, he know, takes go, go, his go, go. kind yeah. of, Why not? he takes his, what can I, how can I describe it? His yield of bodies um and he arranges them 
on the stage, dresses them in feather boas, um, puts makeup on them and sort of plays with these corpses on the stage and then sits and taps his toe and strokes a cat and waits for the final victim to come to him because he's got the key. Um, it's, uh, That's it's, horrendous, Jim. That's horrendous. Yeah, no, it, it was. It genuinely was. And, and I, you know, I avoided it for years. And, and I don't really know why. I think in, I was sort of, I told myself that it was kind of a bit uh, plasticky now and a bit rubbishy and the performances aren't great. And they're not, to be honest, they're not great performances. But as a film, as film, as horror filmmaking goes, it's, uh, it's really up there for me. I think it's brilliant. Um, I, and I really recommend it if you want a sort of quite a disturbing evening. Also, the, the, loads of those Italian films. The first time I saw Suspiria, I think it was about 17 or 18, and it blew my mind because um, I was kind of a teenager in the middle of that American slasher film, sort of that fad. And it's very um, meat and potatoes, isn't it? It's kind of chasing a girl into a cabin and then hacking her to bits with a machete. And the Jello films are these dreamlike, bright colours, like you said, moments of silence, then just deafening noise, and the most intricate deaths you can imagine. Have you have you seen Suspiria? The original I have, yeah, I saw Suspiria. it at the at the, the Argento season at uh, the BFI. Right. Um, yeah. And he was that there. In fact, we did a chat. Yeah, I mean, it's insane. I mean, that that first death really should be reserved for a final act. Um, yeah. It's yeah. extraordinary. Um, Incredible, but it's it's those films. There's another there's another death as well. Um, in oh gosh, I've, it's the red something. Is it is it another Argento film? It's red. Oh, deep red, to... deep red, deep red, deep red. Yeah, with, with the doll puppet. But when when that guy is is murdered, he's murdered very. Sp- it's his. He's he's bashed on every sort of corner of every piece of furniture in the room into his mouth, <laughs> like. Oh. There's something so specific about that that it's it yeah. can only be uh, from a dream. Like, it feels so yeah. dreamlike. Um, it's hard to know how someone's conjured up that idea. Yeah. There's another film of his that's kind of... I can't remember if it was Tenebrae, but I went through a phase of watching so many, they've kind of merged into one. But a yeah. woman gets her arm chopped off, kind of just by the wrist... And obviously she's panicking and screaming. She's basically spraying the room with her blood all up the curtains, all up the walls. All those Italian films feel very normal until the killing begins. And it's almost like you enter a dream world. Because yeah. so, the murders are so strange. It really yeah. unnerved me. They really, really unnerved me as a teenager. I think the thing is... How old were you when you saw um, Stage Fright? Oh, about 14, like 13, 14. Right. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Yeah, and my dad came round the back of the house on the patio doors and sort of banged on the patio <laughs> doors. <laughs> <laughs> he was a... He, my dad was a kind of a scare... Like, he... he well, I get on very, very close to my father and we get on very well, but he um, used to sort of go out of his way to find things to sort of scare me. Not because he wanted to abuse me <laughs> in any way, but I think he wanted to see if I was sort of wired correctly. Like, we'd listen okay. to sort of Thriller and the Vincent Price moment in Thriller. And I think he wanted to see if I was, like, okay with that. You know, I first saw Salem's Lot. I sat and watched Salem's Lot with him the first time. Ooh, um, that That's an honorary mention as well, I think, I have to say. 
Especially yeah. Mike in the chair. Mike in the chair in Salem's Lot is the moment for me. That is uh, yeah, amazing. Toby Hooper. I was going to ask, was it useful having an older sister to get videos you really shouldn't have been watching? Oh, yeah, massively, yeah, absolutely. And it also, but it just, you know, I didn't, I wasn't sort of, uh, I don't know to sort of say this, but I don't know if it really affected me, but I just really enjoyed uh, the thrill of watching something I probably wasn't supposed to watch for a start. But, yeah. oh, yeah. it wasn't just films. I mean, she used to get me sort of hip-hop albums as well and things like that, you know, like... All she the sound, she sounds wow. like, you know, you know, that person you get in prison that can get you razor blades and chocolate yeah. and yeah. counterfeit goods. She, she sounds, like sounds yeah. brilliant. The thing is, she, she doesn't go anywhere near horror films. She absolutely hates them. Um, yeah, she can't stand them. Uh, well, there you go. What, what a fantastic trio of scars. Uh, Vera the Cyborg from Superman 3, Natural Born Smoker, the terrifying uh, public uh, safety advert from 1985, and Stage Fright, a.k.a. Deliria, uh, the movie. Uh, Jim, what's coming up next for you? So there's so many amazing things you've created. What is next uh, on the horizon for you? Uh, well, next on telly will be uh, the Christmas special of Here We Go, which is um, a sitcom. Uh, we filmed the second series... Um, in October and it's a sitcom about a family uh based in Bedford and it's uh, the format is it's shot by the the youngest uh child in the family as a sort of GCSE project so it's all kind of one shot uh home video style um and yeah Catherine Parkinson plays my wife Alison Stebman plays my mum and it's written by Tom Basden who's just a you know I think a genius writer he's also in it as well but the Christmas special for that is coming out on BBC One at some point this Christmas. I can't say exactly because I don't know, but I would imagine it would be between the 21st and the 23rd of December. Full <laughs> <laughs> um, There you go. Ghosts uh, Christmas special and the final episode of Ghosts as well is um, is on, uh, I, I would presume, Christmas Day just because the last one was on Christmas Day. So I'd be surprised if it wasn't. But I don't know. Uh but yeah, um, that's coming on. So yeah, and the second series of Here We Go, the complete second series will be out next year in the spring sometime. Well, listen, it's been fantastic to chat to you. Hopefully um, this hasn't uh, triggered any previously buried memories. Certainly uh, Vera the Cyborg seems to have slightly triggered Steve because you can remember that at the time uh, from when he watched it. But uh, Jim, it's been fantastic uh, having you on Sky for Life. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Uh, that's it for another week uh, a big thank you again to jim howard great to chat to him we'll be back next week with something a little bit different for you it's the final episode in this season and it's going to be our scarred for life christmas special uh dave and steve any hints on what we people can expect from us next week in the christmas special it's gonna be very festive it's gonna be mince pies it's gonna be <laughs> crackers being pulled and also we're going to reveal some of our most horrible Christmas memories, I think. Well, there's one you won't want to miss, just to get you in the festive mood. Uh, do get in touch, as ever, at Scarred for Life 2 on Twitter, particularly Christmas stuff and Crossroads that we talked about a bit earlier on. Uh, and uh, you've been listening to Scarred for Life. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, do have nightmares. We'll see you next week for the Christmas special. 